0: driverless buses and driverless uh, semi-tractor trailer trucks. You know, these things were not very far away from those kinds of things. And, you know, obviously those displaced truck drivers, they displaced bus drivers. And you think, wow, we're gonna end up with this army of unemployed people. What are we gonna do with the billions of people who are unemployed by all this technology? The problem with that is that that's what people have been saying now for like a hundred years, every time there's a technological revolution.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Essential Scholars podcast series. I'm Rosemary Fike, and in our last episode, we talked a lot about the key ideas of economist Joseph Schumpeter. Today, we're going to continue that conversation, and we're going to delve a little bit deeper into these ideas and discuss how they're still relevant today in a modern context. Um, I'm joined once again by Russ Sobel, one of the co-authors of the Essential Joseph Schumpeter book. Russ is a professor of economics and entrepreneurship in the Baker School of Business at the Citadel, and he is the author of over 250 academic journal articles and books. He he focuses his research on the intersection of entrepreneurship and economic policy. Welcome back, Russ. Thanks again for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be with you.
1: Well, I really enjoyed our conversation last time about uh, the many ideas of Joseph Schumpeter, some of which I was familiar and some I'm not so familiar. Um, but I want to focus our conversation today on you know, how we can use the ideas that Schumpeter came up with to understand our modern world, um, even though you know, he was writing in the earlier part of the 1900s. We, a lot of what he talked about seems very relevant and policy relevant today. Um, so I want to ask you, how do you think the barriers and challenges that entrepreneurs have to face today might look a little bit different, um, from the challenges that entrepreneurs faced when Schupeter was writing about them?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good question, because I think there's no question that if you look at data on the number of regulations and the complexity of tax laws and and other things like that, they've just grown through time. So, you know, trying to open a business today versus open a business in the 1930s or 40s is just a completely different can of worms, so to speak. So, um, you know, and, and the regulations that we have in place. We have a lot of business licenses and different rules you have to meet. We're put in place with good intentions, you know, to try to make sure our food is safe, for example. But what that does is it makes it very hard for people to be uh, cottage food uh, producers. You know, in the old days, you used to be able to just bake cookies at home and go sell them somewhere. You know, there are rules now you can't do that. You can't be selling cookies if they're not cooked in the kitchen that meet certain, you know, rules for, you know, health and safety and has a vented hood. And, you know, there's all these agencies responsible for public health and they've legislated or regulated a lot of rules to try to make things safer and and cleaner and better. But what that has done to a large extent is just made it harder and more difficult for very small starting entrepreneurs uh, to roll the dice, so to speak. And, you know, the problem is a lot of these rules, regulations and such function as fixed costs. So if you're a big firm, it's much easier to to deal with those than if you're a small firm. Um, A a good thing that that I think is very visible, at least in my world, since I, I was a kid, is when I was a kid, almost every gas station was a mom and pop gas station those have gone away. And, you know, there's all these very strict environmental regulations on gasoline, storage facilities, underground, you know, there's a lot of rules and regulations on that. And I'm not questioning whether we should have those necessarily. But the point is to the, because there's so many rules and regulations, it requires having a whole department who complies with those. So you've got to have a a gas station chain like BP or Shell with hundreds of stations to make it worthwhile to have a department that just deals with compliance with these laws. No mom and pop gas station has the resources to be able to do that. And I think that it's made it a lot more difficult for the average small entrepreneur to just roll the dice and experiment.
1: Occupational licensing requirements have also grown, at least in the United States, they've grown dramatically over the past several decades. Um, How does that affect the rate of innovation and and entrepreneurial progress?
0: Well, it's the same thing. And I, I think it's important we kind of relate back to the ideas of Schumpeter here. I mean, Schumpeter made this very clear argument that what entrepreneurs do is roll the dice and try new combinations of resources. And there's almost an unlimited number of new combinations, new rolls of the dice. And what we're trying to do is sort through those so that we can discover the next Apple, the next Microsoft, the next Tesla. And, you know, it's one of those things where the more times you roll the dice, the more likely you are to stumble onto one of those one in a million things. And to the extent that we reduce the degree of experimentation and the rate at which those rolls of the dice are happening, we're going to end up with fewer very good successes as a result of that. You know, it, it often bothers me when um, I go to these chamber of commerce kind of events, the local business, you know, agencies will have events and you'll hear somebody who's like a leader in the in the business community or in these chambers of commerce say something like, you know, it's a shame that half of all businesses fail within their first three years. We should do more to help them. It, it just shows so shows a misunderstanding of what Joseph Schumpeter was, was trying to tell us. What Joseph Schumpeter was trying to tell us is that we don't know in advance which ideas are good. What we want is a world where everybody can roll the dice. Even if they've got a very marginal or stupid idea, let them roll the dice. In the world I want to live in, in the world Joseph Schumpeter wants to live in, we're going to have a lot of people trying a lot of very marginal ideas, and a lot of people are going to be failing. But what we're interested in is maximizing the number of rolls of the dice, not what percentage of them win. And it's the more rolls of the dice, the more likely you are to stumble onto an Apple or a Microsoft. So, you know, in my perfect world, there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of failures, but those large number of experiments lead to more successes as well. And I think that we've got this philosophy that 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 we we shouldn't allow that to happen. And it's it's. Uh, it's created an environment where it, it's made it a lot more difficult for the average person to be an entrepreneur, I think.
1: In our last discussion, you mentioned uh, quite a bit about how the profit and loss mechanism of the market is really important towards channeling uh, entrepreneurial efforts. Now, what that kind of um, goal of limiting the failures in the market seems like it would be disrupt that profit and loss mechanism um, so what are the consequences of you know limiting the extent to which businesses experience losses right because you mentioned let me play devil's advocate a little bit you you mentioned we want to maximize the number of rolls of the dice you might argue maybe people would be more likely to roll the dice if you soften the blow of their, you know, uh, fail, failure, uh, your, their failed ventures. So yeah. how does that change things?
0: Yeah, I've heard arguments about that, that basically that some sort of social safety net can lead to higher rates of entrepreneurship. And I believe that there's some evidence across countries that some of that can be true. But, you know, no, nothing is as valuable as making sure that if they do fail, they've got a second or a third opportunity they can pursue, you know, a, an area where, you know, entrepreneurs usually don't just start one business they start multiple and it's usually their second or third or fourth try that's their successful one and it's that process of experimentation and trial and error that helps entrepreneurs learn and and, and be better and i think it's a, it's a very valuable process and you know too often what we do is we we want to interfere with that and uh Instead of trying to support the individual, we try to support the failing business idea. And I think that's when we end up in trouble. And, you know, this this whole pandemic is nothing but one big example of us trying to bail out continuously these businesses who are losing money. And what it's resulted in is this huge overhang. So, you know, we kept in business through all sorts of things, all these restaurants, they're all still here. And now they can't find enough staff. Imagine that half those restaurants closed down, they would be on a hiring spree right now with, you know, it's it's like, we're not letting the adjustments happen. We, We keep trying to subsidize things and keep them around and not allowing the profit and loss system and the price mechanisms uh, to to sort these things out for us. And unfortunately, when we tend to do that, t- things tend to be worse, not better. We, good intentions do a lot of harm.
1: Well, we've had a lot of examples of industries that have been bailed out, like the automobile industry um, and so other industries have been allowed to fail. Is there any kind of idea from Schumpeter that we can use to kind of make sense of which industries are successful at being bailed out and which ones are allowed to fail?
0: Well, I mean, certainly his work on politics suggests that that it's these concentrated interests that, that tend to be the ones who can get the political process to... Uh, to provide favors. So when you end up with something like the airline industry, where there's a few very large firms, they have a lot more uh, pull in the political process than than a disorganized industry, like the corn farmers of America or something, although they probably have industry lobbying associations, but it's not quite as concentrated. And, and, you know, even in, in our modern public choice theory, we know that when you end up with concentrated Uh, Large firms who give a lot of money to political campaigns and and have a lot of employees working for them. And, you know, they they get politically connected. And and we've got this process where this this interplay between big business and government gets to be where government's picking the winners and losers. and, And it's no longer consumer votes and dollar votes that are deciding who's in business. It's who's best politically connected. Who stays in business. And you know, we have a name for that. It's called crony capitalism. And, and you know, I think that's the fear is that when government plays too heavy a hand in, in interfering with the profit and loss system, people instead of looking to business and men and women, instead of looking to customers for profit, look to the government for profit. And so they start you know competing for government favors and contracts instead of competing for for customers
1: as a customer that makes me angry because i really think that businesses should be trying to woo my money away from me um they in a competitive market they have to do that when they get insulated from losses um, when the government's a major player um, they are less responsive to what i want and i don't like that Um, so it seems like that has some pretty severe consequences you know in terms of how resources get allocated in our economy.
0: Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, let's see, switching gears a little bit. um, We talked last time a lot about creative destruction, um, and it seems like the protectionist policies that a lot of firms or industries demand are, are always in in the name of guarding a particular industry from suffering losses from creative destruction. So, as we talked last time, it's pretty obvious that the benefits, you can see the benefits of creative destruction and how obvious they are over the long term, right? I can look back and say, I don't miss the horse and buggy. I can look back and say, I'm not sad about the. Uh, whaling industry going under because I really like my electricity. So, how do we shift focus from kind of the very visible short-run costs of creative destruction to the less visible but arguably more important long-run benefits? Um, you know how how do we how can we do that? Because it seems like the policies are always focused on you know, insulating us from that short-term cost, but that's problematic.
0: Yeah. And, and Schumpeter clearly says that, that any argument for capitalism really relies on its, its on arguments about its long-run merits, right? It's this long-run progress that happens over long periods of time. Is what this process of creative destruction does, right? It, is that we end up through time so much better off than we were a hundred years ago because of all this churning and replacement? Um, and it's these long-run benefits that are the primary argument for why it's important. And you know, what 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 happens is we end up with situations where, in the short run, people want something done to prevent the short-term pain, even though there's long-term gain. And you know, this isn't unique to the economy. It's, it's the whole problem with say an alcoholic wanting to stop drinking or, you know, drug drug abuse, right? There's a lot of problems in life or, or people exercising to, to be healthier, right? I mean, health things, eating healthier. You know, it's these, the this thing in life is an individual, there's these trade-offs between the long run and the short run. And it's very difficult because people obviously discount the future down and care about the present. And it's hard sometimes, particularly for us mortal humans uh, to uh, think, oh, well, it's worth doing this for the future. I think a lot of people in the environmental movement, whether we agree or don't agree, would, would argue that there's all these long run consequences of things we're doing now, and people don't pay enough attention now. So I think you know it's interesting because you could say there's people on both sides of the political spectrum who think that one of the big problems is, is that we pay too much attention to the short run stuff and not to the long run things. And you know, in, in areas of life where that's true, I think it a, a, the most important way to overcome those problems of time consistency is with some sort of constraints and contracts and things that tie our hands so that we can't do things. So if, if you read, you know, how do you quit smoking? Or how do you do this? They're like, you know, you've got to constrain yourself, don't have junk food around the house, right? You know have only fruits and vegetables in your fridge, right? Try to put some constraints on yourself, you know, sign up for a class, do things to constrain yourself, so that you'll live by these principles that in the long run are going to make you better off. It's like saving for retirement, you got to keep saving so that in the long run, you're better off. And, and I think that, That where I'm trying to go with this argument is that I think that constitutional rules and limits on government are the single most important thing to make sure that we end up with a government that works well in the long run. And Joseph Schumpeter even makes this point. So this isn't, you know, something that that is is outside the scope of of the things Joseph Schumpeter himself was writing about, is that constitutionally limited and constrained government um, is, is basically the way to keep government from overreacting to all these short-run things uh, to keep it restricted to the areas that promote the, the long-run interest.
1: Are there ways to maybe ease the pain of the destruction part of creative destruction without inhibiting the process of creative destruction? Um, You know, what kind of policy alternatives, instead of, you know, blocking Uber from operating in a particular city, what kind of policy alternatives could we have to help those who maybe lost their job find one faster?
0: I mean, obviously things that are like job retraining programs, things like that that can, you know, in the the traditional economics, we talk about frictional and structural unemployment. And it's very similar to those arguments where you end up with people who say used to pour vinyl records, pour the vinyl for vinyl records. Those jobs disappear. Right. You know, it's it's cassette tapes or eight-track tapes to replace those way back when. But, you know, you've got people who need to transition from one thing to another. And and how do you make those transitions smoother, easier, um, less disruptive to people's lives? And the argument, right, is that if we could do that, maybe those people wouldn't be as – as resistant to the changes if they knew that there was some sort of help in the transition process. I, I don't know that I've seen articles or evidence on that, but but certainly, you know, along those lines, one would think that that to the extent that we can help those transitions happen more smoothly and less painfully, that it could possibly lower the uh, resistance to those things.
1: Yeah, and maybe even something as easy as you know relaxing you know, geographical restrictions on an occupational license, right? That might be something where you're not requiring the government to do anything, but you're removing a barrier that might otherwise prevent labor from shifting to a more valued use. So yeah. are, there, are there other policies of that nature where, you know, or maybe other restrictions that might be actually compounding the negative effects of creative destruction. We attribute the the pain to maybe the capitalist process, but maybe there's other kind of rules in place that, you know, make that process more painful than it needs to be, if that makes
0: yeah. sense. I mean, certainly there are quite a lot, and maybe this is a very way too narrow example, but it's just something that's on, on my brain because it's going on here in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, is we have a giant historic district. And in that historic district, there's a lot of rules on the property and how, what can be changed about the property and a lot of permissions that you have to get if you wanna make any small change to the property. And we had an example that's been in the papers a lot over the past couple of years of a restaurant that went out of business and um, uh, an owner of a restaurant chain that had restaurants in several other cities, uh, bought uh, or at least bought whatever the place and was gonna open a new restaurant in a place that was already a restaurant before. And all he needed to do was just do the necessary renovations. It, it took him almost four years you know, for permits, applications, because it was in the historic district to be able to get the permissions to make these basic changes changes. It's not even like he's converting, you know, something that wasn't a restaurant to a restaurant, right? It's, it, it's that there's all these, you know, rules to try to protect things that make it more difficult to redisploy an asset or a piece of capital once it's, it's gone unemployed, that there's these barriers to transitioning it to a different industry or to even a new use in the same industry. And any way that we can remove barriers, uh, you know, to those kinds of transitions is good. I mean, one of the things that I think we can see pretty clearly as a result of the pandemic is that people being able to work remotely has caused these major shifts in population. You know, in our area of the country, we've just got people moving in like there's no no tomorrow. I, housing prices have been skyrocketing in a lot of places, but even worse than in, in places that are desirable places to live. But we've got a lot of people moving here who you know, have jobs. So we got a bunch of people wanting to go out to eat at restaurants here and there's not enough weight staff because waitstaff's staff's not moving in, right? So what do we need to happen? Well, we need some creative destruction to unfold. We need resources to mobilize, move here from other places. There's all these transitions that have to happen. And and to the extent that 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 we do things that prevent those transitions from happening, it it, it certainly slows that process. know, unemployment, the unemployment benefits during uh, the pandemic, for example, you know, would be one thing that kept people uh, in their current locations or wherever, instead of trying to transition to to the new areas where where they could be needed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, my husband was actually making more money being laid off during the pandemic than he was making when he was working. So, you know, other disincentives to his productivity people's productivity when we try to ease uh, the pain of the destruction. Um, Let's see. One thing that often comes up when I have conversations about creative destruction is uh, this increasing move towards automation, that creative destruction, it's gonna result not just in a destruction of a, an industry because we you know prefer the new product, but that innovation in the production process would lead to greater automation, which you know where does that leave us in terms of opportunities for work? Is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, what what are your thoughts? What might Schumpeter's thoughts be on 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 that aspect of creative destruction.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. In fact, to give you an example, I you know, we all try to find these examples for our classes. But you know, uh, there's there's uh, driverless buses and driverless uh, semi tractor trailer trucks. You know, these things were not very far away from those kinds of things. And you know, obviously those displaced truck drivers, they displaced bus drivers, and, and those people are very worried and very upset about how these uh, automated processes could uh, potentially cause them to lose their jobs lower the number of job opportunities definitely lower the wages in those occupations and the like and you know it's it's very similar to what we're talking about the short run long run there's no question that those transitions are probably going to happen and that those things are probably going to unfold and that maybe you know 40 or 50 years from now bus drivers and you know truck drivers would be something that's a job of the past right and um And you think, wow, we're going to end up with this army of unemployed people. What are we going to do with the billions of people who are unemployed by all this technology? The problem with that is that that's what people have been saying now for like 100 years. Every time there's a technological revolution you know, in in, in my childhood, this was all over the news every night about what computers were going to do. You know, every economics department, even the one I I, uh, started at when my grad studies, when I started there, same one that you went to, we must have had a team of 10 different staff Staff members in in the secretarial pool who did nothing but type people's exams for them on typewriters, you know, all graded. And, and like, even by the time I'd left graduate school, I think that went down to three. And I'm sure that by the time you were, you were, you left there, I don't know how many people were in the- I
1: think there were still three. I think <laughs> there were still three when I was there.
0: Yeah, you know, but it's one of those things where you know the computer was going to cause us to 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 you know, displace all these workers and people were going to be unemployed everywhere and and then the, the same arguments about robotics in the auto industry. You know, automobiles now are largely produced by uh, robotics and you know you walk into a modern paper mill that's putting out giant reams of paper and there might be like 10 people manning this giant building with machines in it instead of hundreds of people right and so through time we constantly see that what happens is that that we end up with capital replacing labor, but in a way where the workers who remain are much more productive. And it's labor productivity that that capital gives us that leads to higher wages. So if you look at the average wage for the people remaining at the paper plant or the people remaining at the BMW manufacturing facility here in South Carolina, they make way more per hour than did the manual labor that that it replaced. So, you know, labor with capital at its disposal can be more productive. What's the big difference between an American farm and a farm in Kenya? If you just Google Kenyan farm, you're going to see hundreds of people doing manual labor with hand axes and oxen and carrying baskets on their head to transport goods. In America, you find large John Deere tractors and trailers, a lot less labor, a lot more capital. And we have a lot higher incomes here. And what seems to happen through time is that that's a process where those workers then get redeployed into other areas, you know, and and that's what the job of creative destruction is. And what the role of entrepreneurs is, is when something closes down and there's unemployed labor, how do we redeploy it, you know, in city after city? You know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they started closing down military bases. Our town was one of them. And everybody was like, oh, this is going to be the end of our town. You know, they every you know, and they you talk about not only how many jobs are at the military base, but the multiplier effects. It's going to devastate half the town when the military base closes. And sure enough, nothing happened. Here we are in the future. All that property has been redeployed. All those people have been redeployed elsewhere. So we're constantly threatened with these 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 claims that that the world is going to end because some labor is being displaced but the history of actual reality tells us that the economy is remarkably resilient and adapting to that by finding new uses for that labor and expanding our ability to produce so that we have not only that but we have something else in addition to that we have a car and something else that the other people are now producing that would have been producing that car. So we end up with more things to consume and higher average incomes as a result of this capital development process.
1: And shorter work days, yeah. right? People kind of look at jobs as this you know, economic good. But from my perspective, I would love to have you know, the same level of living standards and do quite a lot less work. To get it right, and so the fact that our our work days are significantly shorter, uh, we have more leisure time that's something that you know everybody kind of benefits from, and I don't think we'd have that in a much more labor intensive um economy.
0: Yeah, I think that you make a point that I think is often underappreciated, which is that in some extent unemployment is desirable if if we're talking about unemployment in the sense that somebody used to be a farmer and have to wake up at 4am and not finish working in the field till 11pm to do a day's work. And now they've got a tractor that allows them to do that in eight hours so that they can, you know, sleep in and spend time with their family in the evenings. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, right? Because they're not making money per hour. They're making money from the things they produce and sell. And if you can produce and sell the same amount of stuff in a shorter period of time and gain more leisure, that's a net win, not a net negative, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think about, you know, innovation and automation of household labor, right? Things like uh, washing machines and microwaves and vacuum cleaners, right? and the amount of time that it saved women who were largely responsible for those jobs, it actually allowed them to join the labor force, right? And so, so, um, you know, I kind of share your view that the investment in capital, this move towards automation isn't always a bad thing. Um, Another example I'd bring up is the cash, uh, the registers, the lines at the grocery store, self-checkout, that's, that's the name, the self-checkout lines at the grocery store. I have a lot of friends that will post things on social media, like don't go to these self-checkout lines. You're taking a job away from a cashier. Um, but then I think about, well, you know, my grocery store didn't used to offer a pickup service it didn't used to offer a delivery service. Maybe that automation, you know, me being the cashier, checking myself out from time to time, actually freed up that worker to go and, you know, participate in a different type of service, like, you know, shopping for someone else's groceries so that they don't have to enter the store. I yeah. find that to be a very valuable service. If I can never set foot in a grocery store again, I'd be happy with that.
0: Yeah, and, and on top of that I think maybe it's it's hard to see it so clearly when the economy uh, is in a recession or something but right now virtually everybody's hiring, right? Every restaurant needs wait to, like the airlines need pilots, right? The airports need like if, if people got displaced from something there's all these places where we desperately need labor to move into, right? So, you know, if 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 all of a sudden all the truck drivers are unemployed by driving, you know, self-driving trucks, we definitely can use that labor in, you know, airline industry or something. You know, there's ways, and like we are talking about earlier, it's not always necessarily an easy transition, but, but that's the exact kind of transitions that happen in the long run over, over a long period of time that move labor from one area to another. If you look at the percent of the American workforce that was in farming in the 1800s, it's probably 70 or 80 percent, if not more. Right. And, you know, we're, all that now is transition uh, to other areas. And, and you know, those those transitions, I think it's very easy to see today that there's a lot of excess demand for labor and and there's obvious areas for a lot of labor to be redeployed.
1: So, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, dynamic competition again and and contestable markets. Um, In the book, you mention that Schumpeter's view of competition and contestable markets offers some important challenges to traditional antitrust. Legislation and antitrust practices. So, so what are these challenges that you know? If we take Schumpeter seriously, what are the challenges that governments face when when engaging in kind of antitrust uh, legislation?
0: That's an extremely good question, and I think the best place to start there is by backing up and saying, so what did Schumpeter say? What did he think was important and how do we promote it? And how does antitrust policy work against that? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the the, the logic I'd like to try to pursue uh, on this question with you, which is that if you think about his idea that true economic development through time, the the majority of it, comes from cases where you have uh, somebody who's an innovator who Mm -hmm. patents the idea, comes up with a new innovation, has temporarily monopoly power that generates tremendous profit. And and, in this firm, this giant monopoly looking, very profitable firm is there. And then what happens through time is they get displaced by another person who does exactly the same thing. Right. Uh, And and it's, it's in his world. It's that lure of that big profit that is what provides the incentive for people to roll the dice and innovate all the time. You know, it's it's like the traditional argument for patents. I mean, we go around saying monopolies are bad all the time. If that's true, why do we grant people patents? I mean, we grant people monopoly rights when they invent something. And the traditional argument, even among just average Joe, is well, patents are important because you know it it allows you to earn the income from your innovation. And without the ability to do that, who would put in the time and the effort and the experimentation to actually invent something if somebody could just immediately steal it and they didn't make you know profit from it? So if we think about Schumpeter's view, and his view is that it's these large temporary monopoly profits, and this churning of monopoly over monopoly, and those profits are what are the incentive to begin with for people to come up with these innovations, well, then what, what we do with antitrust by coming in and regulating profits or breaking up those is we end up lowering the profitability of innovation. And when we do that, Joseph Schumpeter even has a couple of quotes that I, I have in the book about that. And he's like, if you start taxing away or regulating away these profits from innovation, you're going to get less of it. And it's going to slow um, the rate of progress. And, and it's, it, he ties it into taxation as well. But I mean, obviously here we're talking about, about something different, but antitrust you know, law. But in, in the world that Schumpeter wants to live in, we, we shouldn't be going after these big monopolies. We should allow new people to displace them and make sure it's easy for them to do so. But leave the market and leave leave those people there to, to innovate. And it's these large firms like Apple that sell so much and Amazon that sells so much and have so much profits that they're the ones who can keep innovating because they have all the funding for the R&D and keep innovating until they get to be the point where they're not good anymore and then somebody's going to displace them.
1: See brought up two things that i was really glad that you touched on in your response because they were things i wanted to ask about um patents is the first one because it seems you know there's kind of the incentive of patents you can make an argument uh either way that that patent would protect the profitability so it should stimulate innovation um but on the other hand it is granting you know a time period where that innovator gets a protected monopoly um what would schumpeter say like would is there any work that he did directly dealing with patents do we do we know what schumpeter would have said about uh you know intellectual property rights protection and and you know patents and other forms of of ip
0: you know, I don't, I, I, of course, read his whole collected works to try to, to work on the, the volume there. And I don't remember exactly whether there's anything in there specific on the patent process. So I'm going to have to kind of punt on that one yeah, and say, I don't, I don't really recall anything specific on that. But certainly the idea that these these strings of monopoly profits, I think he viewed that much more as not being something as a result of a patent as much as just being the result of being the First mover with this used advantage and a name brand who gets in the market first and and you know I mean you know Amazon doesn't have a patent on being Amazon anybody could have been Amazon but now everybody goes to that because it's 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 one of these network effects which we could talk about but um, you know I think it's these these uh, cases where innovators come up with something so unique and so different and have such a first mover advantage of getting in the market and getting a name brand that allows them to have these temporary monopoly profits uh but in some respects are, are equivalent to a patent so to speak you know and causing that innovation
1: which seems to make a patent redundant yeah. in a way um the other thing that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on, because this is a very popular policy idea that gets tossed around a lot these days, um, and that's the idea of limiting the amount of profits that people can earn or limiting, you know, put a cap on the amount of income that somebody can earn because, you know, there's something seen as, you know, morally reprehensible for people to be you know, billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the implications of that kind of policy
0: well i if you it would um afford me the opportunity i'd like to tell you a little bit about uh an academic study that i love that i love to talk about on this topic um and, and i'm gonna have to try to do a little bit of visualization with you but so even Israel Kirzner, who is also somebody from the Austrian school that's often contrasted with with Schumpeter, uh, as Israel Kirzner has done a lot of stuff on entrepreneurship and innovation. Uh, Israel Kirzner argues that it's really profits that incentivize discovery, and one of my favorite uh, academic articles that tried to test that uh, was a very cute article that did a bunch of experiments with people you know these economists they love to do experimental economics they, they get like a bunch of students in the room and they play these games and there's rewards in the games and then they kind of measure how everything works and they change the rules change the rewards and see how people behave differently and there's this really great one that I think demonstrates exactly the answer to this question so bear with me while I try to set up the visualization here so you know what like a five gallon bucket is, right? You know, just a big five-gallon bucket. So the room has two five-gallon buckets on opposite sides of the room. One's full of water and the other is empty. And next to the one that's full, there's one of those little plastic tables like you might have outside on your porch, the real cheap ones that you can get at like a Walmart or department store that, you know, have a, you know, a top that folds over and then four legs and it's all molded on. And then there's three cups empty sitting on that table. And They ran an experiment where they brought people in and they said, I want you to carry as much water from one side of the room to the other as you can, but you can't touch the bucket. And you can only make one trip. And so they competed to see who could get the water across the room, most water across the room. And they had a reward for the people who brought the most water across, and they varied it. So the first time they ran the experiment, somebody got a gift certificate to McDonald's for getting the most water across. And they changed it to where it went to like $50, $100. I think in the top experiment, there was a $500 top prize for being able to get the most water relative to other people across the room in in one one trip. Now, I realize that that that's a lot to digest, but let me tell you the fun part of it. How do you think, I mean, the obvious thing to do is you fill the three cups with water, you carry them across and you dump them in. That's the obvious thing, everybody sees that. But I usually tell my class, I bet you if you think hard enough, you might be able to figure out what you can do to get some additional water across. Let me give our listeners just a minute to think, (laughs) what else could you do other than fill up the cups? The answer is, if you flip that plastic table upside down You can take the cups, fill the underneath of the table with water. Now, without my ability to do pictures, the the table in question had a crosshatch pattern underneath. So you could fill the crosshatch pattern with water, then fill all three cups, sit them on top of the crosshatch pattern. And you've got the table by its legs upside down. You carry it across the room. You pour all three cups in and you dump the underneath of the table in. Now, that was a very long example, but here's the key part of it. The percentage of people who thought to flip the table over was five times larger in the experiment where the top prize was $500 than in the the experiment where the top prize was a McDonald's gift certificate. The proof is clear that you might think, look, every day we're creative people, we think of things. The amount, the number of people who think to do something innovative is clearly a function of the size of the reward. When the reward is bigger, people will take more time and more effort and put more thought into it and are more likely to come up with the solution. So when we allow profits and patents and they're very big, it leads to more innovation and more discovery than when we don't. And this is exactly why if you go Google something like the socialist Trabant car I mean, in the 1980s, the, the Soviets, right, under socialism, were producing cars that are a laughing stock of what an automobile should be. You had to manually pump the windshield washer fluid. You had to manually mix the the gas and the oil together. It's like there wasn't even a fuel gauge on the car. It's all this crazy stuff. And in America, we were making Camaros and Firebirds. And the funny thing is you think of the Soviets as being people who are into engineering. It's not that they're dumb people. It's that without the profit motive, there's not the incentive for the car companies and the people to invent the things that lead to more sales and more profits. And it's that that lure of profits and even larger profits that every day is is what creates the incentive for discovery. And that's why I think a lot of economists, including myself, were worried when there was discussion uh, by the Biden administration of stripping the patents from all the companies who'd come up with the vaccines uh, for COVID. You know, the argument was look, they've got monopolies, they're charging so much. We ought to distribute this knowledge worldwide. Those companies spent years trying to develop this technology and then had to rush it to market with all these experiments. It cost a lot of money to do that. And, you know, when there's the profits uh, of discovery uh, that are the lure for it, people are more willing to do it. And, um, you know, if you if you if somebody said there's a a thousand dollar bill buried in your backyard, you're more likely to spend a lot of time digging for it than if you think there's a five dollar bill buried back there. And that's the point, you know.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to dig a hole for (laughs) five (laughs) dollars.
0: And through your whole backyard trying to find it. Right. But people do mine for gold because finding the one little nugget somewhere means something. Yes. You know, And that's the way to view it, is that what those profits are is the reward. And it's not just the reward. It's the incentive to discover in the first place. But they also mean that if you're, say, open a Mexican restaurant that everybody loves and you earn a lot of profits, that gives you additional resources to open a second location. So we grant the entrepreneurs who do good things with more resources so they can expand their businesses and bring us other good things. Think about how Amazon has expanded through time, right? It's now delivering like next day to people's houses. It wasn't doing that, you know, five years ago. In fact, at the beginning, it was online bookseller, you know, but, you know, that's the process by where profits are not only a reward and an incentive, but, but give successful entrepreneurs more resources to work with to keep creating.
1: So, that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, Schumpeter had this rather depressing prediction that we were going to kind of bite the hand that feeds us, so to speak, when in turning against capitalism. Um, and I do think I see a lot of that, you know, just around me in terms of, you know, how my students talk about capitalism you know obviously before they enter my class not after they enter the class but you know what are your thoughts do you think that the current state of affairs in advanced capitalist nations reflects the predictions that Schumpeter made and and if so um can we do anything about that
0: it's a really good question I mean you know it's if you uh If you go back to say 1820s America and went to an average town, I know there's that series, uh, the Outlander or whatever, where people go back in time or whatever. But if you go back then, I mean, people had to make a living by being entrepreneurs, right? Even if it was just growing food, and selling it, you know, growing agricultural crops and selling it, maybe making clothes and selling it or going into town and opening up a little store or opening up a printing shop, but everybody was an entrepreneur. That was how you made your living was by producing and selling and being entrepreneurial as a small business. And you know, that was everybody's life, you know, 150 years ago. And what's happened now is that that, that so few people as a percentage of the population actually do that anymore. The vast majority of people are involved in working for a big business or in some other pursuit where they're not a business owner and they don't have to like produce and sell for a daily daily thing to put food on the table. That it removes people from this process of being business owners, of being property owners, of 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 being in that in that that realm and and what schumpeter worried was that the process of innovation would become so mechanical within large firms that that it really just becomes disassociated from individual entrepreneurs and and that people would just you know vilify businessmen and vilify profits and turn against private ownership. And and it does seem like that there's there's a lot of people who feel that way. And if you look at them, it's, you know, even your students who feel that way, ask them, well, what, what, what do your parents do? I doubt that their parents are small business owners. And I doubt that they went to work for every day and their parents small business, you know. And, and, and that's the thing is that we get so removed from that, that, that our daily lives we, you know, even as a teenager may go work at a Burger King by, you know, and it's some absentee owner that who doesn't really care, whatever. And you're thinking now ah, these people are evil, you know, and, and it like breeds this thing where you don't really understand the business world and what its role is.
1: And our popular culture and and popular you know shows and and books almost I, I it's I can't even think of a movie or a show that I've watched where the you know capitalist was a good person. Uh, it's almost always the villain.
0: You know, it's it's very telling when if you go back and watch James Bond films. For the history of James Bond films, the the villain was always some evil Russian scientist or some Russian or some, whatever. And in the last couple, in the last decade or two, it's almost always now an evil businessman who's the villain. A profit-seeking rich businessman or person is the villain in the James Bond movies. And it's not just James Bond, but, you know, almost every, you know movie, like the the underlying story is that somebody was trying to make profit and that led to bad things. Take Jurassic Park, right? Even if you go back and just watch Jurassic Park, the first one, it's this story of how evil it is that somebody wants to make profit, you know, by re- reopening some dinosaur park that ends up ruining the world, right? So it's always this pursuit of profit that leads to bad things and evil things. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, TV, movies. I think that that those things uh, tend to reinforce this concept that those are bad, rather than celebrating entrepreneurs for for what they really are.
1: You need to write a screenplay where the entrepreneur is the hero, Russ.
0: Yeah, it's called Atlas Shrugged. Ayn Rand already wrote it, but <laughs> that's a very controversial book and story. But that's exactly what her, That's exactly what that book is. I mean, if somebody wants to read a book. Where it really is the entrepreneurs and the businesses who make the world a better place and are just being constantly harassed by all these rules and regulations. Atlas Shrugged is the book for you to read, and it's uh, you know it, it's it's uh, a story of what happens uh, when that, but it's also a story of the the entrepreneur as a hero. Yeah,
1: it's a. I would definitely recommend the book, not so much the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, the movies aren't quite as good as the book. And the book is really long, so it's hard for people to make it through it, I understand. But, you know, the uh, the point of it, nonetheless, is, is a very good, very good good and, and telling point.
1: Yeah, it is. It is excellent. Um, so do you have any other, on top of, you know, Atlas Shrugged, are there any other books, either, you know, literature, uh, academic books, or articles, or blogs, or just other resources in general that... People who are listening, who might be interested in learning more about Schumpeter or learning more about entrepreneurship and you know dynamic competition, where where might they look next?
0: Well, you know that's a very good question. Obviously, the work of, of Schumpeter and Israel Kirzner and those, you know, because they were academics, a lot of it's uh, a lot of the articles are 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 more like journal articles, things that aren't necessarily. Um, Entirely accessible, but we know we've kind of been skirting a little around um, the whole school of Austrian economics. And there are some very good books that are like the introduction to Austrian economics that you can pick up. Um, I know Randy Holcomb has some I think Pete Bedke and some of the GMU people have some books. Uh, on uh, Austrian economics, and learning about it, maybe even some uh, Roger Garrison uh, has one Um, that, you know, some of those books and readings would be of of keen interest to to people interested in that. There's also some very good uh, books by uh, by businessmen that I think are equally as good. You know, Peter Thiel has a wonderful business book called Zero to One um, that is, is right along these lines. Um, a very famous Harvard professor, Clayton Christensen, has a book called *The Innovator's Dilemma*, that's about why it's so hard for for big companies to innovate, uh, and why it's really startup companies and enterprises that are the ones who bring disruptive innovations to the world. Um, so I think that there's a lot of good ones out there on that. Um, you know, obviously uh, the uh, the Atlas Shrugged is is, is more of a uh, you know a story, not not a, a business case type of book, but.
1: But there's definitely some parallels to the real world when when you read that book, for sure. Um, I'll give a shameless plug to one of our previous episodes of the Essential Scholars podcast, where we did speak with Chris Coyne about the Austrian School of Thought. So if people haven't listened to that, I encourage you guys to go back and and take a a listen to those conversations as well. Um, So final word, Russ, is there any message of Schumpeter's that you would love to to end on?
0: Yeah. I mean, what what Joseph Schumpeter teaches us is that you got to keep your eye on the long run prize. And the long run prize is prosperity and development over a long period of time. And that the most important critical ingredient of that is entrepreneurial experimentation and creative destruction. And that to allow that to happen requires that we keep our markets open and competitive and contestable, making it easy for people to enter and exit and don't have government creating all these barriers to entering and competing with other firms. And that, that we've got to let businesses fail and go out and let things replace them and be tolerant of that process and let the profit and loss system do its job. Um, and I think that that those are the big lessons that Joseph Schumpeter's work teaches us is, is to be tolerant of the profit and loss system and let it work and, and to encourage innovation and make it easy for people to do so. And also maybe to try to preserve capitalism by appreciating these things and realizing that, 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 that while no system is perfect, there's no system as good as the system of capitalism. And, you know, history proves that when you look at the places that have tried other economic systems, you know, despite how they might sound on paper, they just don't work. They, they just don't work to produce the levels of prosperity and economic development and human well-being uh, that we get under capitalism, even with all of its faults. Well,
1: thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Russ. Um, It was really great to to chat with you.
0: It was really great to chat with you as well. I appreciate the opportunity to join you and to share the ideas of Joseph Schumpeter with you.
1: You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time.